Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer to Investors Chronicle, and David Little, Chief Executive of online investment service Ipso Facto Investor. Every year, we put together our IC Top 100 funds list of suggested funds for exposure to a range of investment areas. The aim of the list is to try to help investors narrow down the 3,000 plus active fund options available in the UK. David, there are an incredibly large selection of funds available to UK investors. So when selecting investments from this massive choice, where do you start? Well, I think the first thing to say, it is very difficult uh, to filter out the best funds from such a large potential selection. Um, as I sure you know, Leonora, uh, from all the work that goes into this list. And, and, and this list, uh, the list you put together doesn't even include uh, exchange traded funds. I think it's all too easy to fall into the trap of looking for funds that uh, are popular or uh, have been marketed a lot. And these can be appropriate, but often funds with the most hype tend to disappoint. Um, But the starting point for any investment has to be your objective, what you're trying to achieve, and over what time horizon. This will help determine your asset allocation and the type of risks you want to take. Now, bearing in mind things like asset allocation and personal risk appetite, are funds suitable for everyone? Well, it will usually come down to time horizon. Uh, So if you think you will realise your investment within, say, a five-year period, you should generally stay away from investing in equities, for example. Personal circumstances may also play a part, but I strongly believe we need to open up the benefits of investing for the long term to as many people as possible which is why the industry needs to work harder on bringing the cost of, of advice down. So when you establish your personal asset allocation, um, if, you let's say, you have a long-term horizon and enough risk appetite to invest in funds, um, what's the next step in terms of choosing them? Well, it will, of course, depend on your state of knowledge of financial markets. Assuming you're a new investor, it is worth spending some time investigating the state of financial markets, reading about finance, and dare I say it, getting some advice from places like my company, Ipso Facto Investor. I know people say that marking timing is pointless, and it is all about time spent invested in the markets. But there is quite a lot of evidence that valuation is a key determinant of future returns. So it is worth understanding where valuations stand relative to the past. I think you also need to look at the pros and cons of the various different investment vehicles on offer, investment trusts, open-ended funds, ROICs and ETFs. And uh, also, obviously, you want to make sure that your investments go into the right sort of wrapper and you're using the best investment platform for your personal investing. So what sort of research should you do on funds before you invest in them? Well, we tend to start with fact sheets, which are usually available on the fund manager's website. Uh, You want to look at the objective, the holdings, the structure and the cost and read what the fund manager is saying. Then obviously performance comes into it, performance against sector and index. Concentrating initially uh, perhaps on the five-year performance is what we do. Um, You also want to know how long the team has been managing the fund. 
With Investment Trust, we will also look at stock exchange announcements and annual and interim report and accounts. And if it is a relatively unknown fund management company, we might look at the structure and ownership of the company. Okay, so what would be some of the key attributes that you think a fund should have? So um, it, it is hard to judge funds, we know, but consistency of investment approach with the objective and through time, combined with assuming we're talking about active funds, an investment offering that is clearly different from an index is what we're looking for. Ideally, a fund that is low cost, where the management has been in place for a reasonable amount of time, and either a strong long-term performance record or clear reasons, which are likely to be stylistic, why the fund has not performed well. We will also look at the variability or risk of the returns. And finally, what is important is looking at the nature of the portfolio to understand what's in it and does it add something to what you're already holding? Is it a diversifier or is it building up something, some, say, some of the same exposure that you already have? Now, um, like I said, there's a lot of funds and um, the ICTOP 100 funds and some of the brokerage companies publish preferred fund lists to um, obviously help people narrow them down. How should you treat these lists, you know, in the context of all the other research you do? You know, how important they are? What's their function? Well, I think it's important to say up front that you should not you should not just pick one fund from each category and assume you will have a decent portfolio. I think the great benefit of these lists are firstly that they show the range of asset classes and sectors that are out there. So as a starting point for putting together a portfolio, they can make you think about areas you may not have considered. Secondly, they act as a good testing point. If you have a fund in your portfolio that is not in the list, you may want to compare and contrast. This does not mean that you should immediately get rid of the fund you own, but it may alert you to features of the fund that you had not appreciated. For new investors, the list can act as a useful filter, but it's also good to look at funds that are not on the list. Bear in mind that, that a list like this is usually a snapshot that may at least partly reflect the particular circumstances of the time. But in this fast-moving world, nine months later, things may have changed considerably. Yeah, and I would say that, I will add, that it's fair to say that, um, that so for example, the IC Top 100 funds, it is only 100 funds. And as I say in my introduction to it, there are a lot of other good funds out there, so don't exclude them because we can't have them all a list, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in them. Now, right. <laughs> on the subject of numbers, we've obviously got 100 funds in the list, but um, people definitely shouldn't buy 100 funds. Um, roughly how many funds should individual investors hold in their portfolios? Well, it will depend on... on uh how much time you, you spend looking at investment and uh, what the size of your portfolio is and your risk tolerance. But I guess somewhere between 10 and 20 would be usual. With uh, a pension with a SIP, perhaps, uh, with a balanced approach, you may want slightly more. And I think in current circumstances, you do want to be as diversified as possible. Now, David, you were one of the investment professionals who helped put together the IC Top 100 funds and you suggested adding a number of funds and one of these was M&G Emerging Markets Bond. Why did you think this fund would be a good addition to the list? Well, within its category, which is a relatively risky one for bonds anyway, the M&G fund has a somewhat lower risk profile with a significant proportion of dollar-denominated debt in the holdings. 
And actually, we can see this over the last three months when uh, emerging markets have been under pressure. The average EM bond fund is down over 3%, whereas the M&G fund is flat. Its five-year record is the best in the sector, both in absolute terms and adjusting for risk. So that's why we wanted to include it. Um, More generally, what do you think about emerging markets debt as an asset class and what role could a fund such as M&G Emerging Markets Bond play in your portfolio? Well, it is likely to be volatile, the the whole category and and, and, uh, the the M&G fund. But as an income generator, the the M&G fund has an underlying yield of around 5%. It is a useful alternative to using, for example, a high-yield corporate bond fund. And we think the risk-reward of an EM debt fund, which, like M&G has, uh, or the M&G fund has, over 30% in investment-grade bonds. So the risk-reward here may be more attractive than in high-yield corporates. Now, you mentioned earlier that um, it's in a category, let's say, that's among one of the, let's say, riskier types of bond funds. So is an emerging markets bond fund suitable for all kinds of investors? Well, no, you're right, Leonora. It, it should definitely be seen at the more risky end of the bond spectrum. So it won't be suitable for all investors. There will be currency risk unless the fund is hedged back into sterling. But hedging can be expensive and a drag on performance. And in fact, if we're investing in overseas bonds, we quite like having the currency effect. There's also obviously the credit risk of emerging market sovereigns, governments and corporates, which by definition will be subject to greater risk than their developed market equivalents. So the question is whether you're getting compensated for this greater risk by the yield pickup. Um, And generally, we think that might be the case at the moment. I think it's worth noting that many emerging market nations have a much stronger current account balance than would have been the case 15 or 20 years ago. But obviously, we're seeing in Turkey and Argentina at the moment, Uh, a fair degree or a high degree of currency volatility and risk, which investors need to be aware of. Okay. Now, you favoured keeping many of the existing funds on the list, including Stuart Investors Asia-Pacific leaders. This fund's performance lagged MSCI AC Asia-Pacific Ex-Japan Index and its peer group average in 2016 and 2017. So why did you argue in favour of keeping it? Yeah, it still has a decent five-year record, although that's obviously tailed off a bit. Um, and it's actually uh, less volatile than some of the other funds in the sector. And we think that underperformance uh, over the past couple of years may partly result from not being stuffed full of Asian internet stocks. And with these having had such a strong run, with a correction due, we think it's no bad thing to have an Asian fund that perhaps is not so uh, exposed to tech. And again, over the admittedly short and volatile period of the last three months, the average Asia-Pacific ex-Japan fund is down 8%, whereas this fund is up 1.6%. And remembering also that we were looking at these funds back in July. Yeah, and um, I'll add, I was actually looking at the year-to-date figures more recently, and I see that um, uh, Stuart Investors Asia-Pacific Leaders is well ahead of its sector average, whereas many funds have gone down. So that looks like it's being borne out. Now, you and many of the other panellists suggested removing Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust, a suggestion we followed up on. Why did you think this investment trust should be removed from the list? Well, on this one, for us, it was a very marginal decision, I must say. Um, and we, we, um, 
were in some doubt, but decided in the end to remove the Templeton Trust in favour of J.P. Morgan Emerging Markets. And two small factors swayed us in this decision. Uh, Firstly, the recent change of manager at Templeton, but perhaps more importantly, the, the country exposure, where Templeton only has a relatively small allocation to India, about 6%, compared to 22% for the JPM Trust. And in our emerging market exposure, we want to have a good slug of China and in India. So we think those are going to be the growth drivers over the long term. Yes, JP Morgan Emerging Markets Investments was actually added to the list, um, along with another emerging markets fund. Um, and you can see which that fund is in this week's magazine of website. Uh, if you've retired, your portfolio may well be constructed to provide income in particular from UK equity income funds and shares, which have been a good source of this over the years. But many income investors overlook a key risk when constructing their portfolios. Taha, what is this risk? So this is um, it's looking at a form of diversification, but not the diversification we think about in normal terms. This is um, dividend concentration risk, and it's basically where you have too much of your income coming from too few sources. Now, many people will think that if you have, you know, 30 to 40 stocks or holdings in your portfolio, everything is fine. But the problem is, is that if you have all that income coming from three or four stocks, then you are far too reliant on a very low number of uh, stocks or funds for income. And if one of those fails, you're going to suffer income volatility and then you're going to actually lose quite a lot of income when you might need it most as well. Why is this particularly relevant to UK equity income shares and funds? It's to do with the um, the underlying market. So the UK the UK stock market is heavily concentrated. Um, so by, to get income from the UK market, equity investors have to do exactly the same. For example, fifteen stocks provide fifty percent of all dividends, um, which is and that, that was in the last quarter. So like investors have to buy these to get good income, but then you're far too reliant on them. If one of them fails, you're going to have an income shortfall. And uh, you know a classic example of that is BP in two thousand and ten when it cut its dividend. BP is a top three dividend payer. So if you are overly reliant on that, then you are going to you know, see income volatility quite a lot. Um, there's also sector concentration as well, because dividends mainly come from bank banking stocks and oil stocks and now mining stocks coming back after they cut dividends. But the fact that they cut dividends in the early part of this decade shows that how reliant you are on certain sectors for, for income as well. So how can you work out if your portfolio is over concentrated in a few income sources? The best way to do this is to work out in pound terms um, which of your holdings is providing income and then dividing that by your total portfolio income to see the percentage. Um, you can either get these stats from your platform provider or the other ways to, if you own a stock, is to work out what the dividend is and then obviously multiply this by the number of shares you own. Um, and then that should be able to tell you how reliant you are on certain holdings for income. Does holding um, perhaps UK equity income funds rather than, you know, one company like BP um, mitigate this problem because they give exposure to a variety of holdings? I mean, yes, logically that that is the case. Um, But there are some caveats here. Fund managers obviously look for diverse sources of income when they're constructing their fund. But um, I think one of the most important things that uh, listeners need to realise here is that if they own equity income funds and they buy their own stocks, and we see this quite commonly in our portfolio clinic, that a lot of investors do this. They buy the big FTSE 100 dividend payers and equity income funds. What you're doing there actually is increasing your concentration risk because the fund manager is reliant on these stocks for income. You yourself are then more reliant on these stocks for income. So if you lose one of these, if one of these stocks stops paying a dividend, you're going to get a double hit. There's also 
the fact of looking at the funds concentration risk itself. Um, there, used, there was some momentum in the past about getting fund managers to disclose this, but it, only one or two do so. Um, but if you are worried about the dividend concentration risk in a fund, um, you have e- absolutely every right to contact the fund management group and ask what it is. Presumably, you can also look at the um, top 10 holdings on see what the fund has as well yeah, to work some I mean, of that out. If you look at the top 10 and you see BP, Shell, HSBC, then you can assume that they're, they're very reliant on these stocks if they have high weightings to them as well. So... With that in mind, how can you go about avoiding being over-concentrated in a few sources of income? Uh, well, the first thing is is what I just alluded to, is to make sure that your income funds um, and your own direct shareholdings are not exactly the same, um, because obviously then you're, you're heavily concentrated. You also possibly want to think about diversifying away from the FTSE 100 stocks. Well, they count for over 85% of dividends paid, but you know, dividend growth in the FTSE 250 is quite good. And you can look down to those smaller stocks and aim stocks for income as well. Um, of course, diversify overseas. But then the caveat is always make sure you're not over diversified because then you're just going to be paying for a lot of active funds if you're using funds and getting market returns. And uh, if you have a look at the IC Top 100 funds, you can see some suggestions on UK smaller companies' equity income funds and overseas equity income funds. And you can also read Taha's full guide on how to avoid dividend concentration risk in this week's money section in the magazine and on the website. Old Mutual Global Investors, the asset management firm headed by high-profile fund manager Richard Buxton, has announced plans to launch its first investment trust. Emma, you've been finding out more about this. What can you tell us? Yes, so the trust is going to be called Mirian Chrysalis Investment Trust, and it's going to be invested in quite an interesting area, a concentrated portfolio of between 7 and 15 unlisted companies. And these are going to be typically quite mature companies that are starting to think about an initial public offering IPO. This trust is aiming to raise £200 million at its own IPO, which is going to be taking place in October. No. Old Mutual Global Investors, until now, has focused on funds invested in listed equities and bonds. So why is it now looking to launch a private equity investment trust, which is obviously quite different to any of its existing funds? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And it's actually part of a trend that we're seeing more and more funds and trusts focus more on unlisted companies. I mean, the managers of this this trust say that they think that these kind of companies can offer longer term growth rates, which are better than the UK public listed companies. And also, um, there's a lot more choice of of companies within private markets. The number of companies available is growing. So there's a number of reasons why they want to go into this space. Who are going to be the managers of Merian Chrysalis Investment Company? Interestingly, it's going to be a couple of managers who run mid and small cap equities at Old Mutual Global Investors, Richard Watts and Nick Williamson. Richard Watts runs Old Mutual UK mid cap fund. Which is an IC top 100 fund. It is. Um, um, and it's shown very good performance. Over five years, it's made double the returns achieved by the FTSE 250 index. And Nick Williamson runs Old Mutual UK Smaller Companies Focus, and it's also beaten its benchmark, delivering 42% compared to 29% in the time the manager's been running it. The benchmark is numerous smaller companies index. So yeah, some two pretty good managers to run a quite interesting looking trust. Now, David, 
like Emma said, an increasing number of asset managers, while maybe not launching dedicated private equity funds, are introducing an allocation to enlisted assets in their existing funds. Why is this? Yes, it's an interesting one. Uh, I assume there are a number of factors at work here, not least perhaps that in a world where passive investing is becoming ever more popular, active managers are trying to differentiate themselves from from the index uh, trackers. Um, But as Emma indicated, there may also be a valuation argument that quoted equities may be fully valued. So you need to hunt in private equity for returns. And I think, again, as Emma said, it may be difficult for UK fund managers to get exposure to certain sectors. I'm thinking of tech and biotech in particular in the quoted markets, whereas there may be new young companies coming through in the private sector. And I think the other fact is that there may have been a a dearth of interesting IPO opportunities over recent years for, for a number of reasons. Emma mentioned that Richard Watts, the manager of this new trust and his colleague, have a very good record of investing in listed companies. But they're not going to be running listed companies. They're going to be running unlisted companies. So can managers who are good at investing in listed equities apply their expertise to unlisted companies? Well, there's no particular reason why not. But clearly, investing in private equity PE is a slightly different skill set. Successful private equity investing requires both good deal flow and detailed due diligence, not just picking successful business models. So getting down and dirty and monitoring cash flow is, uh, is an important aspect of what happens in PE. I think also assessment of management capability is likely to be more important than for quoted companies, where there tends to be more governance in place. And by definition, you don't have liquidity in PE. So if you sense that things are going wrong, there is often not much you can do about it. I think the most difficult thing about PE investing is deciding whether to put more money into situations that have gone wrong, as they invariably do, or do you let the business fail? And this is not really an issue that listed fund managers face, uh, except to a small extent with rights issues. But usually, that's not staving off catastrophe, so to speak. What sort of experience do you like managers of private equity funds to have? Well, traditionally, you would have had a, a mixture of corporate finance, technical and sector expertise and accounting skills in a private equity team. But of course, as with many things, a lot of PE te- teams over the past simply learned their skills on the job. And the successful ones were often those who happened to be in the right place at the right time. We've seen some good teams. Uh, I, I, I like the, uh, the old team at Electra, and it seems to me a great shame that that trust has, uh, is effectively being wound down and, and not reflecting the, the team's um, previous good track record. But the teams at HG Capital and Northern Investors seem to produce consistently good results. Many investment trust initial public offerings have failed to launch over the past few years, and many of the ones that have succeeded have tended to have an income focus. So do you think Marion Chrysler's investment company will succeed in launching its IPO? Well, I think it will depend on how much institutional and wealth management support they have lined up. I mean, clearly, they have a good following uh, among wealth managers. And as we've seen, the, the, the listed performance has been very good. But this is a relatively high-risk investment at a time when arguably retail investors might look to be taking some risk off the table. 
And my perception is there's still quite a lot of private equity cash and trade buyers chasing good private companies. So whether the attractive pricing is there at the moment, I'm not sure. Thank you, David. And you can read more on the forthcoming launch of Merian Chrysalis Investment Company and alternative private equity investment trust options in this week's Funds News and the IC Top 100 Funds. That brings us to the end of today's show, but have a look at this week's issue of Investors Chronicle of a website for the full version of a newly updated IC Top 100 Funds, tips on how to manage equity income portfolios and news on fund launches. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.